Listen now as he prophetically hears, listens to the cries of his people as the invasion itself begins. It's stunning. Verse 14, Why are we sitting still? Assemble yourselves. Let us go into the fortified cities. Let us perish there because the Lord our God has doomed us and given us poisoned water to drink for we have sinned against the Lord. At least they recognize it. We waited for peace, but no good came. For a time of healing, but behold, terror. From Dan is heard the snorting of his horses. Remember, Dan is in the north. Babylon's invading from the north. His horses are Nebuchadnezzar's horses. At the sound of the neighing of his stallions, the whole land quakes. Imagine a massive battalion, a massive cavalry of stallions ridden by the Babylonians driving down the land. You can hear the thunderous earthquake of it all. For they come and they devour the land in its fullness, the city and its inhabitants. And then the Lord gives another zoological description of invasion. Not just the stamping of stallions, but the swift moving slithering of snakes. Verse 17, the Lord speaks now, For behold, I am sending serpents against you. Adders, highly poisonous adders, for which there is no charm, and they will bite you declares the Lord. Psalm 58, verse 4 and 5, describes the wicked this way. They have venom like the venom of a serpent, like the deaf cobra that stops up its ear so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or a skillful caster of spells. Babylon is on the march. Babylon storming in, stampeding like horses, slithering in like highly poisonous adders, and they cannot be stopped. And Jeremiah sees this before anybody else. He hears it before anyone else hears it. Gang, this is terrifying. This is horrific. Imagine you receiving a vision of North Korea launching missiles against the West Coast. Imagine you hear the screaming of the missiles as they come in and make landfall. Before anyone else knows, you get this vision. What would that do? It would be terrifying. It would be horrible. And that's what Jeremiah has to deal with here as he gets this horrific vision of that which is to come. And he hears even more. Suddenly there's like a cacophony of cries coming from three directions. Verse 18, Jeremiah himself saying, My sorrow is beyond healing. My heart is faint within me. Behold, listen, the cry of the daughter of my people from a distant land. And then Judah cries out, Is the Lord not in Zion? Is her king not within her? And then the Lord answers Judah, Why have they provoked me with their graven images, with their foreign idols? And then Jeremiah cries again, Harvest is past, summer is ended, and we are not saved. And if possible, if you could take verses 18, 19, and 20 and put them all happening at once as he screams and cries and the terror of Jeremiah and the terror of the people. In fact, if you look at the three, Jeremiah laments and the Lord loathes the situation that is now upon his own people and Judah languishes in it. And it's all happening simultaneously in this horrifying realization of what is to come. And the prophet hears it first. And then he continues in his sorrow, verse 21. For the brokenness of the daughter of my people, I am broken. I mourn. Dismay has taken hold of me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? 
Why then has not the health of the daughter of my people been restored? Oh, that my head, chapter 9, were waters, and that my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Oh, that I had in the desert a wayfarer's lodging place, that I might leave my people and go from them, for all of them are adulterers, an assembly of treacherous men. Now listen, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 9. Some scholars have said they can't both be Jeremiah because they're so different. Verse 1 is the verse of compassion that I weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Verse 2 is the verse of judgment that I might leave my people and go away from them. So perhaps there are two writers here. Not at all. This actually makes perfect emotional sense. You ever love someone so much that their sin choice both breaks your heart and pushes them away from you at the same time? That's what's happening with Jeremiah. He loves his people. It tears his heart out that they have chosen this rebellion. And yet at the same time, he can't stand to be around them. He's dealing with both emotions. This is the aching conflict in the heart of the prophet. And it reminds me of the dilemma of the Apostle Paul. Paul, in a similar way, Romans chapter 9, verse 2, I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites. Romans 10 verse 1, Paul says, My heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for salvation. And yet these same people were throwing Paul into prison, were driving him out of town until finally he starts going off to the Gentiles. Because his own people have rejected the message. So Jeremiah is torn. And by the way, I, I, I believe we would do well to share Jeremiah's and Paul's passion for God's people. To feel the way they feel. To love His people Israel. Even if we disagree with what we see His people Israel doing. Even if we look at their choices, at, at their rebellion, or, or at their rejection of God, that we will love them even if it aches. Even if it brings conflict in our own hearts. Don't ever doubt that God loves His people. Now the Lord speaks. They will bend, or they bend their tongue like the bow. Lies and not truth prevail in the land. They proceed from evil to evil. They do not know me, declares the Lord. By the way, jump back up to verse 19 of chapter 8. Where the Lord says in the middle of all this turmoil, Why have they provoked me with their graven images, with their foreign idols? Listen, God is aching over this. Even as He's bringing the punishment on by way of the Babylonians, God is pained over having to do it. The parent who does not want to discipline the child, but has to. And so on down in verse 4, he says, Let everyone be on guard against his neighbor. Do not trust any brother. Because every brother deals craftily. And every neighbor goes about as a slanderer. Wow, I'm so glad that doesn't happen today. (laughs) Everyone deceives his neighbor and does not speak the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves committing iniquity. Your dwelling is in the midst of deceit. Through deceit, they refuse to know Me, says the Lord. Well, why is that? Because God is truth. And you can't pursue deceit and lies and pursue the Lord. 
Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth. And so you find Jesus in truthfulness, not in deceit. And therefore, verse 7, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will refine them and assay them. Remember that word assay is like a smelter, refining pure metal, gold or silver, refining out all the dross. For what else can I do because of the daughter of my people? Their tongue is a deadly arrow, it speaks deceit. With his mouth one speaks peace to his neighbor, but inwardly he sets an ambush for him. (laughs) Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord. On a nation such as this, shall I not avenge myself? Verse 10 he says, and listen to now the pain comes out of the heart of the Lord. For the mountains I will take up a weeping and wailing. And for the pastures of the wilderness a dirge. Because they are laid waste so that no one passes through. And the lowing of the cattle is not heard. Both the birds of the sky and the beasts have fled. They are gone. I will make Jerusalem a heap of ruins, a haunt of jackals. I will make the cities of Judah a desolation without inhabitant. Why would God weep and wail for the mountains and the pastures of Israel? Because His people are no longer there. Because His land is the inheritance of His people and His people are gone. And I I think I shared this back in uh, 2010, August of 2010. We returned home from taking Hannah to college for the first time. And I went downstairs to her room and Cheryl was running to the store to get some things so I was going to go ahead and start cleaning up her room. And I went down there and I was fine. Until I looked on her dresser and there was a little, tiny little heart-shaped ceramic kind of ring case that said Hannah on it. And I lost it. I bawled my eyes out. It's the most embarrassing thing. I'm glad I was alone. I'm standing there in her room. Why was that so upsetting? It was more upsetting than saying goodbye to her at Whitworth University. Why? Because this was, this was what was left of Hannah and Hannah wasn't there. And it broke my heart. And I had to go upstairs and call Cheryl. Just come home. When you come home, I'll, we'll, we'll do this together. I can't do this myself. I, you know, she's like... I married a moron, she's thinking. You know. This is the Lord looking at His land that is now empty of His people and He mourns over it. And He is heartbroken because of it. Verse 12, Who is the wise man that may understand this? And who is he to whom the mouth of the Lord has spoken that he may declare it. Why is the land ruined, laid waste like a desert so that no one passes through? The Lord said, because they've forsaken my law which I set before them and have not obeyed my voice nor walked according to it, but have walked after the stubbornness of their heart and after the bales as their fathers taught them. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will feed them this people with wormwood. And give them poisoned water to drink. I will scatter them among the nations whom neither they nor their fathers have known. And I will send the sword after them until I have annihilated them. Now hang on. He's not talking about the annihilation of every last Jew. He's talking about the annihilation of those who back in verse 2 of chapter 7. Of those who enter by these gates to worship the Lord. But their hearts aren't in it. I will annihilate those of false religion. Those who really don't believe what they say they believe. 
those for whom it's all a show. Church, listen. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11. Paul says, These things happened to them as an example. Talking about Israel. They were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. God would talk to you and to me tonight. This is not just a history lesson. This is what happens when people feign obedience to the Lord. They show up at church. They're going to temple, but their lives are idolatry. And we've got to understand this. Wormwood in the Hebrew is the word la'ana. La'ana, which literally means translated bitterness there in verse 15. Wormwood is used eight times in the Hebrew Scriptures. Four times by Jeremiah in Jeremiah and Lamentations. In Proverbs chapter 5, verse 4, wormwood is the description of an adulterous woman. In Amos chapter 5, verse 7, and in Amos chapter 6, verse 12, wormwood is the perversion of justice, and Moses uses it as a warning against, uh, of the people against the idolatry of the nations. Keep your finger here and turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 29. Deuteronomy 29. And turn quickly. Verse 16. Originally, I just had this in my notes, but I want you to see this. Draw kind of a connection here. Remember, Deuteronomy are the last words of Moses. He's coming back. He's going back over the law. He's reteaching the people. He's at the end of his life. And so he's covering it all one more time to make sure they get it. In Deuteronomy 29, verse 16. He says, You know how we lived in the land of Egypt and how we came through the midst of the nations through which you passed. Remember? They came out of Egypt. They remember Egypt. They came through the different lands. They went through Moab. They went through Edom. They went through Ammon. They covered through all of these different nations. They saw all this. Listen to what he says. Moreover, you have seen their abominations, verse 17, and their idols of wood, stone, silver, and gold, which they had with them. Why did God lead the Jewish people, His people Israel, through all of these idolatrous nations? Moses tells us. So that, verse 18, there will not be among you a man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turns away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. That there will not be among you a root bearing poisonous fruit and wormwood. Wormwood. There is here the example of idolatry, idolatry right before the people before they ever get into the land. God takes them on a museum tour of what idolatry does. Look at what idolatry did in Egypt. Look at what idolatry does to the Edomites, to the Moabites, to the Ammonites. Look at this. Pay attention to it. You see how bitter it is. God shows it to them and then brings them into the land so that they won't go that same direction. But they ignored the lesson. They ignored it. They didn't believe it would happen to them. Well, we know Egypt was messed up, but that was Egypt. They didn't have God. So it's not going to be a big deal if we're idolatrous a little bit. They completely ignored the lesson. My question to you, brothers and sisters, you can go back to Jeremiah, is will we ignore the lesson? You see, God is taking us through Israel. He is walking us through the history of His people. And he's saying, look at what the idolatry did to them. Look at the bitterness it caused. Will you go that same route? Or will you learn the lesson that they refused to learn? 
by the way, wormwood, used eight times in the Hebrew Scriptures, is only used once in the New Testament Scriptures in the book of Revelation. Chapter 8, verse 10. Which tells us the third angel sounded, a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of the waters. The name of the star is called Wormwood. Point of interest, the same word in Russian is Chernobyl. Chernobyl. Because that's what Wormwood does. Destroys. Bitter destruction. The name of the star is called Wormwood, and a third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died from the waters because they were made bitter. What am I saying here? There is, in the judgment of Judah, a type of a greater judgment to come. A worse judgment. And what our truly... Our sin truly is, what idolatry truly results in is bitterness. Idolatry, elevating anything or anyone above God first in your life, will bring nothing but bitterness. That's what the Lord is teaching. And when we rebel, when we refuse to accept the full authority of the Lord God, all that's left for us then is bitterness. Verse 17. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Consider and call for the mourning women that they may come. And send for the wailing women that they may come. Let them make haste and take up a wailing for us that our eyes may shed tears, that our eyelids flow with water. Whoa, whoa, wait a minute. What? Did you catch what he just said? He didn't say that your eyes may shed tears. He didn't say that your eyelids flow with water. He says, our. Because our God is the great identifier. Because He identifies with our tears. Because when we weep, He weeps. When our hearts are broken, His heart is broken. As He watches the heartache and the heartbreak, even of Jeremiah, it breaks God's heart. As He calls upon the weeping and the wailing over His people, as this disaster descends upon them, He says, it's our tears. Not yours, ours together collectively. Gang, Jesus came to prove to us the great identification of God with His people. Jesus, the Word made flesh. That we would understand, the Hebrew writer says in Hebrews 2.17, He had to be made like His brethren in all things, so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in all things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That we would see and would know And could know, even right now, God knows exactly how I feel. God understands when I am sorrowful. God gets it when I'm depressed. God knows what it feels like physically, as well as spiritually, to be heartbroken. We don't just read of a distant God, of the Old Testament. God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Who says, hey, when you hurt, I hurt too. Yeah, but you're God. So I don't know that you really know. And God put on flesh and His fleshly heart broke. Just like yours. And just like mine. Because God is the great identifier. Verse 20, Now hear the word of the Lord, O you women, and let your ear receive the word of His mouth. Teach your daughters wailing, and everyone her neighbor a dirge. For death has come up through our windows. Sounds like a flood, doesn't it? 
It has entered our palaces to cut off the children from the streets and the young men from the town squares. Speak, thus says the Lord, the corpses of men will fall like dung on the open field and like the sheaf after the reaper, but no one will gather them. Back in 1976, the band Blue Oyster Cult had their one great hit, Don't Fear the Reaper. The great cowbell song. Don't fear the reaper. It was a song written about eternal love even after death. It's the idea behind it. Problem is, without the redemption of Jesus, we'd better fear the reaper. And the picture here of the reaper, he's going through and he takes, he takes his, uh, his sickle, swings it, and picks up the sheaf and tosses it behind him and it floats down to the ground, having been reaped. God says, that's what's going to happen to you, Judah. That's what's going on here. Revelation 14, verse 15 tells us we ought to fear the reaper if we're not in Jesus. Another angel came out of the temple crying with a loud voice and said to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come because the harvest of the earth is ripe. And then he sat on the cloud, he swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. And we're talking about final destruction. We're talking about Armageddon. Yeah, we should fear the reaper unless we're in Jesus. In which case, perfect love casts out that kind of fear. Verse 23. You with me? Okay. Thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. And let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this. That he understands and knows me. And that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For I delight in these things. Note the contrast here. By the way, I'd love to spend more time. Maybe we'll do a Sunday on just those two verses. But note the contrast. Three big things to man. You could even call them mankind's big three. Wisdom, might, and riches. Wisdom, might, and riches. These are the big three for the human race. Okay. Contrast those to the Lord's big three. Loving kindness, justice, and righteousness. Oh, human beings have their three. God has His. Verse 23 is humans. Verse 24, God's. Boast in knowing Him. That is what He's all about. Loving kindness and justice and righteousness. Verse 25, Behold, Days are coming, declares the Lord, that I will punish all who are circumcised and yet uncircumcised. What does that mean? It means it's just going through the motions. He's saying to Israel, saying to Judah, you may be physically circumcised, but you are not spiritually circumcised. And then he goes on in verse 26, Egypt and Judah and Edom and the sons of Ammon and Moab and all those inhabiting the desert who clip the hair on their temples for all the nations are uncircumcised and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised of heart. In this stunning statement, God says, Israel, you may be physically circumcised, but you're as spiritually uncircumcised as all of the nations. He actually hand in hand refers to Judah and Egypt together because he says, you're just like the nations. You're acting like the nations. You're being like the nations. And man, this hit me. It's like like God saying, Rick, 
the church is acting an awful lot like the world these days. We are not, we are not going to proclaim or project the glory of God by looking worldly. That's not how you do it. The message of the gospel, the message of the cross, the humility of people who realize, hey, we're no better than the world. We are sinners, but we're sinners saved by the blood of Jesus. That's the message. And it is only by being different than the nations that the nations can see the difference and desire what God has for them. It says, those who clip the hair on their temples. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? The King James Version leaves it out altogether. King James just kind of translates that to the corners of the land. That's not what it says. It's one of the areas where King James, I think, was just slightly out to lunch, just for one verse there. All those inhabiting the desert who clip the hair on their temples. That's the Hebrew, kesutz peah. And it literally is cut the corners. All those who cut the corners. And it was a hairstyle, literally, among Arab tribes who were honoring Bacchus, the god of wine. So they would clip their hair, and it was a certain look that they had. A certain image. And the people of Israel, the people of Judah, thought that was kind of a cool image. Look like the nations. Look like the world. Oh, I like that haircut. That's cool. Yeah, but, but you see, that haircut actually depicts Bacchus. Well, that's okay, but it's a cool image. It's a cool look. Leviticus 19.27, God said, You shall not round off the side growth of your heads, nor harm the edges of your beard. What's that all about, Lord? I can't cut my hair the way I want to. No, you can do that. Just don't cut it in a way that makes you look like an idol worshiper. Don't do things that make you look like the world. Be different. Be holy because I'm holy. Okay, here's the bottom line. You can't cut corners with God. <laughs> you cannot cut corners with God. You can't, you can't come into church and give a little tithe, light a candle, sing a song, call it good, and then go off and live like the nations. doesn't work. Judeans showing up at temple doing all the sacrifices, but they're cutting corners. They're idolatrous in behavior. Romans chapter 2, verse 28 says, He is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. He is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter, and His praise is not from men, but from God. Paul said that. Jesus said in John 17, 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And truly, that's what tonight is about. Sanctification in the truth. And I might put it this way. He is a Christian who is one inwardly, not just outwardly. Outward Christianity only without the heart is idolatry. In the same way that going to temple without the heart was idolatry, even though it was God's temple, it's putting the temple before God. Now the culmination of this temple address comes in a sarcastic song. Jeremiah 10 is a sarcastic song, a polemic psalm, if you will. It's a judgment and it's a warning, and in it God quickly will cut a sharp contrast between idolatry and His majesty. And He just starts off, and it's just those two things. 
the stupidity of idolatry and the sagacity of His majesty. I'll explain that in just a second. But first, the stupidity of idolatry. Verse 1, chapter 10. Hear the word which the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Where's Jeremiah right now while he's speaking? He's at the temple. He's still at the temple. This whole thing has taken place at the temple. Can you imagine? (laughs) Imagine being one of the people of Judah standing around listening to him give this teaching, this message. His tears are streaming down his face as he's seeing what he's talking about and they're going, wow, he's going off. And he comes down to it. Listen up, everyone, he says, verse 2. Thus says the Lord, do not learn the way of the nations. Do not be terrified by the signs of the heavens, although the nations are terrified by them. And the signs of the heaven, he's not talking about uh, astrology here. He's talking about belief in like comets and meteors and eclipses. And these big signs that the pagan nations saw as portents or omens of bad things. Like back in the the late 80s, the Heaven's Gate cult. Remember that cult? That they believed that with the coming of the Hale-Bopp Comet, which I one time called the Halle Berry Comet. Made a little confusion there. The Hale-Bopp Comet. And the Heaven's Gate cult believed that with the coming of that comet, they would be lifted up and saved, and so they committed suicide so their spirits could go up to be with the comet. In this age, this stuff still goes on. And so the signs of the heavens, don't be terrified by these, God says to His people through Jeremiah, speaking to Judah, don't be afraid of these. For the customs of the peoples are delusion. Because it is wood cut from the forest. Now He's going to take you through the process of making an idol. You go into the forest, you cut wood. The work of the hands of a craftsman with a cutting tool. Now you shape that wood. And they decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with nails and hammers so that it will not totter. Like a scarecrow and a cucumber field are they. They cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot walk. Do not fear them. They can do no harm, nor can they do any good. It is the stupidity of idolatry. This description is great. It it describes the impotence of the idol. The idol that starts out A tree with no sentience, chopped down, carved by the craftsman, covered up with silver and gold. Sounds kind of like a Christmas tree, but we won't go there tonight either. (laughs) Stood up, and then it's fastened with nails because it can't stand up on its own. you got to stick nails in the bottom to hold it up, otherwise the thing will fall over. That's how stupid this is. It can't speak... You can go to your idol all you want and say, oh, I just need some sound advice. I need some wisdom. I need some comfort. And it sits there and does nothing. And he says in this ridiculousness, it can't walk. As a matter of fact, your idol's going to be a burden for you because you've got to carry it wherever you go. They would have these big parades in Babylon and they'd be lugging these idols along. Oh, hail the idols, you know, as they're carrying them. And the stupid things can't even walk down the street. The stupidity of idolatry. (laughs) Isaiah covers it beautifully. You can read that on your own time. Isaiah 44. It's amazing the way he describes this. In Psalm 115, and we're not sure if the author was Moses or Jehoshaphat or Ezra, one of the three of them wrote Psalm 115, but it says the following about idols. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. 
They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they can't feel. They have feet, but they can't walk. They can't make a sound with their throat. And then he says this, listen, those who make them will become like them. It means we become like whatever we worship. And idols are unseen, unfeeling, immovable, deaf, dumb, blind. They can't do any good. Compare that with what I call the sagacity of His Majesty. Sagacity, I just needed a good S word. It means acute, penetrating discernment. Great wisdom. Stupidity of idolatry. The sagacity of God's majesty. Picking up in verse 6, There's none like you, O Lord. You are great. And great is your name in might. Who would not fear you, O King of the nations? Indeed, it is your due. For among all the wise men of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there's none like you. Amen. And he goes on and says, but they are altogether stupid and foolish. I love the Bible just calls it as it is. They're just idiots. The idol worshippers and the idols themselves, just dumb. They're foolish in their discipline of delusion. Their idol is wood. Beaten silver is brought from Tarshish. Gold from Uphaz. The work of a craftsman. The hands of a goldsmith. Violet and purple are their clothing. And they're the work of skilled men. But the Lord is the true God, He says. He's the living God, the everlasting King. At His wrath the earth shakes or quakes. And the nations cannot endure His indignation. Make a note of verse 11. Thus you shall say to them, The gods that did not make the heavens and the earth will perish from the earth and from under the heavens. Verse 12. It is He who made the earth by His power, who established the world by His wisdom, and by His understanding He has stretched out the heavens. When He utters His voice, there's a tumult of waters in the heavens. And He causes the clouds to ascend from the end of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain and brings out the wind from His storehouses. Every man is stupid, (laughs) devoid of knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols. For His molten images are deceitful. There is no breath in them. They are worthless, a work of mockery. In the time of their punishment, they will perish. The portion of Jacob is not like these. Here's the good news. For the Maker of all is He, and Israel is the tribe of His inheritance. The Lord of hosts is His name. And we're going to come back and study this when we get to Jeremiah 51, because Jeremiah 51 verses 15 through 19 parallel word for word exactly verses 12 through 16. It's repeated again at the end of the book. God's far-seeing wisdom in contrast to the blind delusion of idol worship. And it's just stunning. Ask me, by the way, how I know the Jewish people will survive because they are the inheritance of God. He says, this people is my inheritance. You think God's going to give up His inheritance without a fight? Let's take that a step further. You think God's going to give up His inheritance at all? No. 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 He will keep for Himself a remnant of Israel. He is going to bring the remnant through the fire and He will have His inheritance in the coming kingdom. Mark His word. By the way, I mentioned verse 11. 
verse 11 is the only verse in the entire book of Jeremiah that is written in Chaldean. This is not Hebrew. Verse 11 suddenly is Chaldean. What's Chaldean? Aramaic. Why is verse 11 in Aramaic while the rest is in Hebrew? Because verse 11 is a, is a statement for the nations. God is saying to the entire planet, the gods that did not make the heavens and earth will perish from the earth and from under the heavens. Any and everything you worship that is not me is going to perish. And he says it in the language of the world. And by the way, Jesus spoke Aramaic too, didn't he? Why did Jesus speak Aramaic? Because it was the language of the world. It was the most common language of the nations in Jesus' day. And that's the language that he chose to speak so that everyone could hear him. I love that. Let me ask a question here. We're we're right down to the end. If idols are so very stupid, if they're so inane, if they're so empty, if they're so worthless, if they're so powerless, why does the Bible speak out against idolatry so much? If there's nothing to them, why is this an issue from Genesis to Revelation? Idolatry is dealt with over and over and over and over by the Lord. Why, if there's so little to them, if they themselves are so phony? And the answer is this. Because the demonic realm behind them is so real. The idols are a deception. They can do nothing. But the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10.20, the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I don't want you to become sharers in demons. That's why idolatry is so dangerous. Because behind every single idol, be it an idol of stone or gold or wood, be it a car or a house or success or a sports team, behind every single idol or a singer, a musician, is a demon. And a demon who would dissuade you, who would get you off track from a real relationship with God. And you know there are even demons in church buildings. There are demons in denominations. There are demons in traditions. Anything possible that would get between you and an authentic relationship with God the Father. Now the message ends with Jeremiah's own realization and his his contrition. Verse 17, he says... From the gate of the temple, pick up your bundle from the ground, you who dwell under siege. For thus says the Lord, I am slinging out the inhabitants of the land at this time and will cause them distress. Note this, that they may be found. One last thing i got to tell you before we finish this out. Babylon was not punishment for punishment's sake. Babylon was discipline to drive idolatry out of the people. God took His people to Babylon not just because they needed a spanking, but because they needed learning. And remember that. He takes them into the seat of idolatry so that they can be disciplined in hopes that the real heart of His people might be found that their heart might start beating again, that they would be so sickened by the idolatry that they see in Babylon, that they would come back to His land purified of idol worship. And it worked. They did. When they came back in the land, idolatry was no longer an issue for the people of Israel. 
verse 19. Now Jeremiah speaks out the end of this message. Woe is me. I can almost see him slumping down on the ground in the gate of the temple as the people are wandering off in disbelief and in rejection and rebellion. All that he's just said, they're not listening. Woe is me because of my injury. Literally my breaking. My wound is incurable. But I said, truly this is a sickness and I must bear it. My tent is destroyed. All my ropes are broken. My sons have gone from me and are no more. Wait a minute. Jeremiah didn't have children. His people. This is how much love he has for his people. There is no one to stretch out my tent again or to set up my curtains. For the shepherds have become stupid and have not sought the Lord. Therefore they have not prospered and all their flock is scattered. The sound of a report. Behold, it comes a great commotion out of the land of the north to make the cities of Judah a desolation, a haunt of jackals. And then Jeremiah in this broken state says, I know, O Lord, that a man's way is not in himself. Nor is it in a man who walks to direct his steps. Correct me, O Lord, but with justice. Not with your anger or you will bring me to nothing. Those two verses are an absolutely beautiful prayer of repentance. I would encourage you to memorize verses 23 and 24 and to pray them as a prayer of repentance. This would be a good one for us to offer up from time to time. Pour out your wrath on the nations that do not know you and on the families that do not call your name for they have devoured Jacob, they have devoured him and consumed him and have laid waste his habitation. And my friends, it's not a prayer of malice or revenge. It is a cry for justice. And it's a cry God answered. It's a prayer He responds to. Babylon is going to fall. In that same century, Babylon falls and is no more. Guess who still survives? Judah does. Guess who comes back to the land, finally disciplined, finally cured of their idolatry? They come back to the land. But there's one tragedy that would follow. 500 years later, Jerusalem would fall again. And I'm reading through this and I was thinking about this. That, but they were cured of idolatry. Jerusalem fell the first time because of idolatry. God took them to Babylon, cured them, takes them back to the land. And now, idol worship's not a problem. When Jesus came on the scene, the people weren't worshiping idols. That was not the issue. What was the issue? Religion became the new idolatry. They had replaced idolatry with religious Judaism. And we can do the same thing, religious Christianity. My church, my temple, my tradition, my rules. The temple address in summary comes down to one thing. Nothing can substitute for an authentic relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what He wants. That's what the people needed to learn. That's what we've got to hold on to. Final verse. 1 John chapter 5, verse 20. John writes, We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. And John then says, Little children, guard yourselves 
from idols. And Father, that is our prayer tonight, that we might be, by Your Spirit, guarded from idols. That we would not even make, Father, this barn into an idol. Our music into an idol. Our traditions. Even, Lord, our Bible study, that we wouldn't say, oh, it's, it's my Bible that I carry around that keeps me saved. It is the blood of Christ that cleanses us from all transgression. It is our relationship with You. And Lord Jesus, my prayer is that we might just walk in that genuine, authentic relationship prayerfully day unto day, closer to You, our first love, our only love. Guard us, Father, from idols. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.